0: Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show.
1: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now,
2: go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as of as hell
3: and I'm not going to take this anymore!
0: We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. I ask you not only to win the battle, but to win the war. am We're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes, if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for itself after centuries of
4: fighting. You're out of order. You're out of order. The whole trial is out of order. You have
5: meddled with the primal forces of nature, and you.
0: Happy Friday's Eve and good afternoon to everyone, except for Klaus Schwab, of course, and his creepy disciples, minions, and sycophants at the World Economic Forum, where I see our Deputy Dimwit, Twitchy Freeland, is there. Once again, undermining Canadian democracy and selling us out. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again unapologetically, without hesitation or reservation, for a democratically elected representative and a cabinet minister who has sworn an oath to be under the influence of a non elected, non governmental organization like the World Economic Forum to be sitting on their board. To be pushing their undemocratic, collectivist, authoritarian agenda on Canadians is an act of treason. 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 Klaus Schwab now suggesting the end of free elections. And that means Chrystia Freeland, as a member of the WEF board, is on board with an end to free elections. Investigative reporter Leo Homan, uh, reporting on the comments of Klaus Schwab and suggested online, quote, Schwab showed his true Nazi colors today in Davos, saying that nations will soon no longer need to bother holding elections because voters could easily be replaced by artificial intelligence. He reported AI is more than capable of choosing a nation's leaders The report explained Schwab's bone chilling comments came during a talk fest with Google co-founder Sergey Brin and was posted by our good friend Ezra Levant of Rebel News. Schwab called for AI to go into a prescriptive mode, which means you don't have to have elections anymore because you can already predict. And afterwards, you can say, why do we need elections? Because we know what the results will be. The report charged one thing about technocratic globalists. They aren't bashful. They speak boastfully as if everyone shares their excitement about all of the death and dehumanization they envision. Holman noted Schwab and Bryn were talking about digital tech, such as IA. The report pointed out, remember when Yuval Harari, who is uh, Schwab's top advisor, said a few years ago that in an age of AI, humans no longer have free will. That may be what Schwab is referring to here. If AI knows what everyone is thinking and is able to influence people's choices at some point, literally making all choices for them, then why would we need to even bother with elections? The world would, at that point, no longer be populated by humans, but by remote-controlled transhumans. This is sick, evil. It's an anti-human agenda that the World Economic Forum is pushing, is advocating for. And Klaus has bragged about infiltrating Western governments and cabinets, and he has named Trudeau. It is 100%... Unacceptable for any elected official to be affiliated with the WEF at this point. If you want to go to Davos and call them out on their BS. The way Trump did several years ago or Argentinian President Javier Malay just did. That's another matter. Otherwise, it's Treason. The uh, laptop computer Hunter Biden abandoned at a repair shop and uh, which later confirmed a long list of scandals, behaviors. And of course, it played a key role in the 2020 election. The FBI used it in its election interference campaign in which it told publications to suppress the details because it was likely, quote, unquote, Russian Russian disinformation. Remember that? Do you remember that? That happened even as FBI agents knew that it was real, that there was nothing Russian or disinformation about it. A subsequent polling revealed that had Americans widely known the truth, they would have withheld their support for Joe Biden. Enough of them would have withheld their support. It would have changed the outcome of the election. It would have turned the election to, to president Trump. Now, Years later, the Department of Justice is finally admitting what analysts, observers, media members, and experts have said for a very long time. It's real. The Daily Caller is reporting that the DOJ now has acknowledged the legitimacy of Hunter Biden's infamous laptop for the first time. The Daily Caller explained in its uh, Tuesday Or sorry, the DOJ, rather, the DOJ explained in its Tuesday court filing from prosecutors responding to demands from Hunter Biden that his federal firearms charges be dismissed. Uh, He's accused of lying on a required federal form when he bought a handgun claiming he was not on drugs when his book confirms he was addicted during that time period or when his laptop rather confirms he was addicted during that time period. The the DOJ admits the laptop that Biden left at a computer store had information matching what prosecutors already had obtained from Apple. The DOJ states investigators also later came into possession of the defendant's Apple MacBook Pro, which he had left at a computer store. A search warrant was also obtained for his laptop, and the results of the search were largely duplicative of information investigators had already obtained. It was the uh, New York Post that initially revealed the contents of Biden's laptop, which contained, among other things, vast pages of emails about the Biden's crime family. One key falsehood was perpetrated by a list of 51 former intelligence officials, the report said, who falsely claimed the content was a Russian disinformation operation. Hunter Biden is also facing legal issues over his failure to pay taxes on millions of dollars in income and possibly face charges for being a foreign agent and failing to register properly. You see, eventually the truth always rises to the surface as oil rises above water. The DOJ has just admitted then if the laptop is real. Not Russian disinformation. They were pushing it as Russian disinformation during the 2020 election. They're admitting the 2020 election was subverted. Will there be an apology? Are you kidding me? Will Biden be asked a follow up on this? Maybe by Peter Deuce of Fox News. Remember Biden repeating this lie about the 51 former intelligence officials? He said they confirmed the laptop story was Russian disinfo all throughout the 2020 campaign. The DOJ knew it was a lie. When they repeated it and Joe Biden knew it was a lie. So when you combine this election interference. By a weaponized DOJ and you add to that the 400 million dollars from Mark Zuckerberg. Which was used as voter outreach by the Democrats. That's all you need to know. The 2020 U.S. election was subverted, fixed, stolen. Which means the vast majority of the peaceful protesters, not the vandals or those that committed any violence, but the hundreds of thousands of protesters who went to Washington and Capitol Hill on January 6th were right. All right, busy show today. Francis Crescia, guest columnist with the Western Standard, will be here, last order of business, with a look at Trudeau's Ministry of Truth. That would be the CBC and uh, the bought and paid for lamestream downstream legacy news media. Adam Zivo, columnist with the National Post, will be here in hour two with the latest on the radical unhinged safer supply drug advocates in British Columbia. Remember these kooks? They want safer supply drugs to be prescribed to minor children without parental consent. Well, wait until you hear what they're up to now. Mia Hughes, formerly Mia Ashton, will be here for our In Defense of Women segment this hour. She'll talk about the World Health Organization's guidelines for transgender health care. Jay Goldberg from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is keeping an eye on your money. He's arguing that Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow could easily freeze property taxes by simply scaling back her spending plan. But first, Davos and the Great Disease X Deception with Cheryl Chumley from The Washington Times. The Richard Saracho often running for Thursday, January 18th in the year of our Lord 2024. Facta non verba.
4: We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM.
0: Welcome back. We've been hearing a lot about Disease X lately. The World Economic Forum and their partners in crime, the World Health Organization, have made sure of that. Disease X. Be very afraid. Be very afraid. Well, what is it? Never mind. Just be afraid. Well... We're going to find out a little bit more about uh, Disease X right now. Cheryl Chumley is the online opinion editor, commentary writer for The Washington Times and host of the Bold and Blunt podcast. Cheryl, welcome back.
1: Great to be with you. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, so Disease X, uh, is do they actually have uh, an actual virus uh, that they're concerned about? Or is that just more of a placeholder, like a kind of a catch-all phrase for whatever they decide it means?
1: Yeah, that's actually the exact word they use, placeholder, that disease X is a way of describing the The agenda that they will put in place in order to mitigate any type of future pandemic, uh, the name of which is still unknown. So it sounds like it's government taking care of the people, right, to to basically take steps to keep people free from dangerous diseases and viruses. But the devil's in the details. And if you look at these globalists and these communists that serve in the globalist governments, you can see the dangers that come with this type of planning
0: um so the um the world health organization's pandemic treaty uh which they're pushing very hard for uh they want new powers to prepare for the next pandemic um so that would be necessary they say because of you know pandemic x preparation
1: that's all part and parcel of it. And, you know, if you're waiting for the World Economic Forum and the Davos crowd to join uh, together, to link those uh, ideas together, then you'll wait in vain because they're never very clear, right? And that that's sort of by design. They keep things open and, and friendly sounding so you can't see uh, what's going on behind the scenes. So the discussion about disease acts, uh, they say, no big deal, nothing to see here. We're just, uh, you know, pre-planning. We're we're doing, we're doing uh, preliminary damage controls so we don't see another disaster like the coronavirus uh, again around the world. But if you look ahead to May 2024, the World Health Organization is hoping to have in place its pandemic treaty that it started discussing a couple years ago, and within the details of that treaty is something that is horrific for America in particular, in terms of stealing our national sovereignty, but also just completely stripping individuals of their God-given liberties. And the exact same measures that they want to put in place in America, of course, they want to bring to every other nation around the world.
0: Uh, So what exactly uh, are they, what new powers would they get if this pandemic treaty is um, I don't know approved by member member countries.
1: It's basically what we saw under COVID only done from a total top-down approach. So whereas Justin Trudeau in Canada may have done X, Y, and Z, and Donald Trump and then Joe Biden in America may have done X, Y, and Z as well, but at a slower pace, and then all the other nations around the world followed suit or didn't follow suit. It was their determination whether or not to put in place certain measures. Under this pandemic treaty, all the member states of the World Health Organization would agree that... That the director general of the World Health Organization would have the sole power to determine whether a virus that comes up any spot around the world has pandemic possibilities. And if so, then he and he alone can dictate, and of course, I don't use the word dictate, they say advise, can advise how local bureaucrats ought to react and respond to this. And if you look back on the coronavirus, of course, right between the lines, and it's not that difficult, you can see, that the total top-down controls will be set in place with this treaty?
0: So one man, Dr. Tedros, who's not really a doctor, uh, he could impose uh, universal uh, vaccine passports, probably digital passports around the world. He would decide who would get to fly and travel, who would not. Um, Mm -hmm. Go ahead, yeah
1: he he basically would have that power of course it's not spelled out like that how it would work is he would have the power to declare an emergency and then helpfully suggest and advise how those uh, partners with World Health Organization ought to react to it. And those that don't react to it, well, just look at what happened in America under Anthony Fauci. If you didn't go with what he called were advisements, but were were really dictates, then you felt the pressure of the media. You felt the pressure of all the sheep and the trolls to come out and pray Protests, and then you felt the pressure from the political partisans and so forth. So it's basically a dictate in the hands of one person, Tedros, as you point out. But they don't put that they don't put it that bluntly.
0: We'll uh, take a quick time out. Cheryl Chumley, online opinion editor, commentary writer for The Washington Times, host of The Bold and The Blunt podcast. And uh, we'll uh, continue this conversation in three minutes right here on The Richard Serrett Show, Saga 960.
4: Let's get back at it on News Talk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Sarah Show.
0: All right, welcome back. So we have uh, Dr. Tedros. Can't pronounce his last name. Sorry. Uh, we call him Dr. Tedros. He's not a real doctor. In fact, according to uh, many reports, he has strong ties to a terrorist organization in Ethiopia, his uh, homeland. Then we have the World Health Organization, funded largely largely by the Communist Chinese and Bill Gates. Uh, They want broad new powers, part of the uh, pandemic treaty, which could be ratified as uh, early as May of 2024. That would give Dr. Tedros the uh, the ability to identify the next pandemic, declare the next pandemic, uh, and then, I guess, use the powers of persuasion and whatever other the media and so forth uh, to persuade countries, member states uh, to I don't know what, go through the hell that we just went through the last three years. Is that pretty much it, Cheryl? (laughs)
1: That's that's a good way of putting it. Yes. And, you know, you bring up Bill Gates, right? Because he is one of the top funders of the World Health Organization, shamefully America as well, though Donald Trump tried to pull us out of that and stop funding. Joe Biden put us back in. But Bill Gates has written a book, how to beat the uh, next pandemic or how to stop the next pandemic. And in it, you can see the playbook, right? You can see how these things all work together, what's going on at the World Economic Forum right now with Disease X discussion, the looming uh, World Health Organization treaty, pandemic treaty, and then Bill Gates with his vision on how this will work. And one of the alarming recommendations that he puts forth is the creation of a rapid reaction team of scientists who will uh, rush to any area that dr t right at 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 the world health organization deems needful of a uh, virus watch and they will determine the scope of danger due to a an emerging virus and so bill gates will basically have his team of scientists roaming the earth looking for the next virus to pounce upon report back to the world health organization hey this thing is breaking and then from there all else will flow um yeah now,
0: here's something interesting. Um, there's, there's now talk about Chinese scientists experimenting with a, a mutant strain. Uh, I don't know if this is gain of function, but in this particular experiment, this mutant strain of a, of a, a virus killed all of the mice in a, a recent study test, 100%. New York Post reporting on this, describing the study as a Wuhan-esque Uh, obviously named for the Chinese city where the uh, Institute of Virology is located, a Wuhan-esque study. And uh, basically uh, this new death sentence is known as GX underscore P2V. It attacked the brains of mice that were engineered to reflect genetic makeup similar to people. Uh, So maybe this is what they have in mind. Maybe this is disease X, GX underscore P2V. They've already done the studies. It killed a hundred percent of the mice. Um, I don't know. What do you think? It sounds pretty ominous.
1: Well, it it definitely does. And again, China's at the heart, right? China was at the heart of the coronavirus. And here they come again, doing more testing of concern to citizens of the globe, really. And the fact that we have people that are so prominent in the field of Uh, virus research and the supposed vaccines that go along to mitigate the effects of the viruses that come, like Bill Gates, that we have so close in partnership with China, is yet another red flag. When you look at all these people involved with the World Health Organization and World Economic Forum, they're communists at root. And then you have people like Bill Gates working hand in hand with China and scolding free countries like ours into. To bending and bowing to the communist way. So it, there's a lot going on out there. And it, it really, people need to be educated and up uh, and, and believe what these globalists put out in terms of their messages, because they, they're not hiding their agendas or designs.
0: Are you concerned that um, the, the World Health Organization, the WEF, the um, where whoever else, you know, is in their, uh, their web, their tangled web, uh, are gearing up for another pandemic in time for the 2024 U.S. presidential election so they can repeat, you know, what happened in 2020 with all the mail-in voting and so forth?
1: Well, I, you know, uh, we, I think we've discussed this before, and I would say that's a 50-50 Right. Uh, I would not be surprised. And I think if the globalists could push that way, they certainly would. In America, there has been a lot of backlash and pushback on some sort of shutdown in time for the elections. And so hopefully people are aware of it. But put it this way, if if the globalists could get by with it, they would do that.
0: It's not even necessarily just about a virus, is it? I mean, these broad new powers under this pandemic treaty would pertain to any, whatever Tedros decides is a health uh, uh, crisis. A health crisis could be related to the climate, the environment, right?
1: Well, it, it definitely is. And a couple of years ago, they already started making that link, basically saying that if we do not do all the climate change controls that they want, we are opening the doors to more and more diseases and more and more viruses. And one example they give is that as we develop the land, as we cut down trees and we build homes and businesses, what happens is the natural habitat there, the deer, for instance, don't have their, their place to live anymore more. So they roam closer to where humans live, bringing with them the diseases that deer carry. And then the idea, the logic here is that because they live closer to humans, since we cut down their trees, then we become vulnerable to more diseases from deer. And then people will die, people will die, people will die. So they're making the link as we speak between climate change and virus. And their overall goal is to segue into to environmentalism and exert controls to control emissions that way.
0: Cheryl, how do we listen to the bold and the blunt?
1: Go to WashingtonTimes.com and subscribe, or really, you can get it anywhere. Thank you.
0: And uh, don't forget, uh, folks, the Cheryl Chumley Substack is also uh, available, CherylChumley.substack.com. Cheryl, thank you as always. We'll talk again soon, I hope.
1: Thank you. All right.
0: When we come back, Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, is keeping an eye on your money. He says it would be so simple for Olivia Chow and all her communists on the uh, Toronto City Council to freeze property taxes. All they need to do is scale back the ridiculous spending plans. That story's next. Stay with us.
4: You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 a.m.,
6: Forgive me if I don't think
0: about monetary
6: policy. The budget will balance itself.
0: The fastest rising interest rates in 30 years. Fastest inflation in four decades. When will the government realize that Canadians are out of money and the party's over? All right, welcome back. Well, it looks like perhaps, possibly, maybe Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow will not accept a, uh, a pay increase, a raise, according to a, a press release from her office, uh, although she hasn't uh, officially said she won't take it. We'll, uh, we'll find out more about that and how, in fact, Olivia Chow and uh, Toronto City Council could easily freeze property taxes instead of the proposed 10.5% increase. They could easily freeze property taxes simply by scaling back their ridiculous spending plans. Jay Goldberg is with us, the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jay, welcome back. How are you? Doing well. Great to be with you. Okay. So this press release says she didn't ask for it. She doesn't want it, but it didn't say she won't take it. Do I have that right?
5: That's exactly right. So Olivia Chow, uh, after you know, we had supporters uh, go after her and say, absolutely, she shouldn't be getting a pay hike. And we did our News release, she then came out through her spokesperson and said, well, uh, the mayor didn't ask for it and she doesn't want it. Uh, But that doesn't explicitly say the mayor will take it out of the budget because currently it is in the text of the budget. So we are pressing Mayor Chow to do that further commitment because we've had plenty of cases in the past where you've had politicians say, oh, I don't really want the pay raise, but they let it go through anyway. So that's why we're staying on top of her. I know you will. I know you'll keep an eye
0: <laughs> until you actually see her hand grasping the the eraser and and or or the the red pen and striking it out of the budget. We won't believe it until we see it. All right. So the um, the budget um, as it presently sits is there are what over a billion dollars in the hole. We're not talking about their their capital. We're talking about their operational budget. The capital budget is something else entirely. But the operating budget, they're a billion and, and, and change in the whole. That's why they 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 claim, the council and Chow claim they need this ten and a half percent increase in property taxes. It'll go up to sixteen plus if uh percent increase if they don't get the money from the federal government to bail them out. But you're saying none of this is necessary. They could easily freeze property taxes, keep them where they're at. All they have to do is address their spending problem.
5: Right. So uh, we can take both scenarios, but essentially right now, Olivia Chow and budget chief Shelly Carroll, they're planning to increase city spending this year by just under $900 million. They also say that their new property tax increase, the proposed 10.5% increase if they get the money from the feds, is going to bring in about $443 million in new tax revenue. Well, If you scale back their spending increase to only about $400 million, which is still a lot of money, you wouldn't have to raise property taxes at all because they are introducing new spending at twice the rate uh, of the revenue they're going to get from this property tax hike. So actually, it is completely avoidable. They don't have to raise property taxes. They just have to rein in the size of their spending increase. We're not even talking about cutting the actual spending number from last year to this year. We're just saying scale back the increase and you don't have to hit taxpayers like this. Uh, well, it's funny, you know, they're willing to cut in
0: certain areas. They cut the police budget by, I think, 12 mm. million. Uh, I believe they cut um, uh, the budget for snow uh, snow removal, although that, yeah. may, that may be tied to, uh, you know, forecasts and so forth. Um, but they're certainly willing to cut in certain areas, but not others. Where Where do we know where the bulk of that you know that 441 million in, in increased spending is going. Do we have um, any idea what that money's being spent on?
5: Well, I mean, they're really increasing money being spent all over the place. Uh, really, they're doing. Uh, certainly, they're looking at libraries. They're looking at uh, more spending on things like transit infrastructure. Uh, this is not necessarily a bad thing, but wait. What they have to do is have priorities, right? So if you want to spend more money in certain areas, they should be coming not just with savings. And, of course, the police budget is the wrong place to go after. We all know that. But not just small uh, savings in certain places. I'll give you an example. Uh, Cardis put out a report last year that said that if the city of Toronto, for their construction contracts... We're willing to give those contracts to firms and allow firms to bid if they're not fully unionized, which almost every other city in Ontario does. The city would save three hundred and fifty million dollars. They wouldn't have to go after the police budget. they could still put some money into libraries and, and transit. but this is all about them protecting their union buddies. They could honestly they could make this change, save three hundred fifty million dollars and pay for some of the priorities that mayor Chavez is saying she wants to go after. Right. And I'm I'm thinking they're also excluding bids from co- uh
0: contractors that don't meet certain quotas in terms of, you know, diversity, equity
5: and inclusion. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, again, and it's costing the city 350 million dollars a year. Again, that could you could almost wipe out the property inc- tax increase with that alone. But again, Three hundred and fifty million dollars. That is a ton of money. And they're throwing it away year after year because they won't make a common sense reform that even, for example, the city of Hamilton has done under left wing leadership.
0: Remarkable. Uh, You know, you pointed this out, and I think it's a shame that the premier um, had requested an audit of the city of Toronto so that we could all find out, you know, where the waste is. Uh, and then he canceled it like midstream. They spent the money. They began the audit. And then whatever deal he struck with Olivia Chow, he canceled that audit. Now we won't we won't know where the waste is. He's basically covering for Olivia Chow and the, and the city council. That's so disappointing. It would be so yeah. helpful to have those numbers.
5: Well, look, no mayor, no city council wants to have someone come in and show taxpayers exactly where all the waste is. And that's why it was so important that the provincial government was going to do it. They were sending auditors in not just into Toronto, but into cities like uh, Mississauga. Brampton, they were looking at cities in the GTA. So this would have been really great for taxpayers in so many municipalities to see where is the waste? Where could we find savings? They hired Ernst & Young, a very respected firm. Uh, They were well on their way to doing these investigations in all of these cities, the audits. And yes, when Doug Ford made his deal with Olivia Chow, he also canceled the audits, not just for Toronto, but for all of the other municipalities that were being investigated. So this is, it is a huge shame. Doug Ford is covering for the runaway spending in many of the GTA municipalities, not just Toronto. And uh, yeah, it's a huge shame for taxpayers. It's something we should have had done. And a premier who was more committed to making sure that taxpayer dollars are actually used wisely, instead of thinking about politics, would have absolutely had this go through, line by line study And then you turn around to these mayors and you say, if you want extra funding from the province, you've got to cut out this waste. Unfortunately, they're not doing that. Jay, thank
0: you as always. Thank you. Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. In uh, just about five minutes, in defense of women. Stay with us.
4: Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga,
0: 960 AM. All right. Welcome back. You know, we don't always have the opportunity to choose people we work with that share our values, but when we can, we should. Absolutely. So stop working with woke banks and big financial institutions that don't share any of your values and give our friends at Rocklink a call. Rocklink Investment Partners, proudly Canadian, proudly conservative. They offer a genuinely unique investment approach in the crowded money management space. They love working with like-minded folks that share their passion for ending the liberal and woke insanity that's destroying our country. So give Rocklink a call. I did, and now I'm a client. Call 905-631-5462, 905-631-5462. Email them at info at rocklink.com. Tell them your buddy Richard sent you info at rocklink.com. Remember, that's rocklink with a C, R-O-C-K-L-I-N-C. Health organization in the process of developing a guideline on the health of trans and gender diverse people. They recently extended the period for public consultation after they came under heavy criticism for rushing the process. They've also been heavily criticized for the radical bias nature of panel members. And the World Health Organization has also admitted that evidence supporting gender-affirming care in children is limited and variable. Here with more is Mia Hughes, researcher and journalist with WDI Canada. That's Women's Declaration International Canada. Uh, Mia writes for Michael Schellenberger. Nonprofit Environmental Progress. Mia, welcome back. How are you?
3: I'm well, thank you.
0: Tell us what we need to know about the World Health Organization's Transgender Guideline Plans. What is this all about, first of all?
3: Right. I'll give you a bit of a timeline to start. So on December 18th, the World Health Organization announced that they were going to be developing these new guidelines. And they they were going to be dealing with the health of trans and gender diverse people focusing on the provision of gender affirming care and then legal recognition of gender self-ID. And they had this period for public comment that closed on January 8th. Now that right there should make you suspicious. If you want to minimize the amount of public input, On any issue, I can't think of a better time to announce the public comment period than right before Christmas and the period closes right after Christmas. You have to suspect that they were trying to avoid public scrutiny on this.
0: Right. Now, first of all, let me just interject. The guidelines that they are going to announce, are they likely to be adopted by all members of the United Nations and members of the World Health Organization?
3: I don't think anyone would have been under any obligation to adopt these guidelines, but they will they will obviously influence policymakers and health providers everywhere because it's the World Health Organization saying, let's say, and judging by the panel that they had amassed, that they had put together, it would have been very in favor of medicalized gender, so-called gender affirming care. So, it would have and and still could, this is this hasn't been cancelled. They still could have a huge influence on how people suffering from gender dysphoria are treated. So, so back to the, the the Christmas period. Those who opposed gender-affirming medicalized care got wind of what they were doing, and and then a group, the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine (SEGEM), launched a petition, which, in a very short space of time, I just looked, and they have eleven thousand over eleven thousand signatures, and it was basically calling on the World Health Organization to have a more diverse panel. This was a highly biased panel made up of three quarters trans activists, people who meant most of whom who had said in the past that exploratory therapy is the equivalent of conversion therapy. Most will um, support the very medicalized gender affirming care. There were no there was nobody who questioned that approach. There was nobody who favored talk therapy over medicalization. There were no um, detransitioners. It was a very, very biased panel.
0: They're not medical people, they're activists who are determining the guidelines for transgender affirming care. They're 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 activists, in other words, they're not medical people.
3: Oh, it can be a combination of the two. So if I, I don't have it directly in front of me, but if I remember correctly about half of the, it was a 21 member panel, I think perhaps 11 were medical, but then you can be, there are so many activist clinicians. There are so many who, who manage to, who think that they are practicing medicine, but they're actually just trans activists pushing a political agenda And then, yes, there were, there were a number, I think there were 10 that were not medical and, you know, trans rights, human rights lawyers, but trans activists, the the most colorful Canada contributed the most colorful of all the non-medical trans activists. And that is an individual called Florence Ashley, who created the biggest stir, I think, and has already been dropped from the panel because... This individual has got some very questionable views.
0: Is this the activist on the World Health Organization panel who argues that anyone who is opposed to child affirming care is committing genocide?
3: Okay, that was Keenan. Oh, no, Keenan is a trans identified female who, um, yes, goes on very um, extreme social media rants about calling the the bans on pediatric medical transition in the U.S. calling them genocidal and saying everybody has blood on their hands and stuff. Keenan, I would say, is not the most extreme though. Canada offers the most extreme in the form of Florence Ashley, because Florence is a a, a man who um, identifies as something like a trans feminine non-binary. Something with they, them, I'm not joking now. This he, he has they, them, that, excuse my language, that bitch pronouns. Those <laughs> are his pronouns. Um, <laughs> and he, amongst his uh, very questionable beliefs, he thinks that puberty blockers should be the default. Because to allow a child to go through puberty is to favor something called cis- embodiment, cisgender embodiment. So puberty blockers give more time to explore the gender and and therefore should be preferable. He also thinks that children are in a better position to make major life-altering medical decisions than their parents because A a child who is transgender understands their own gender identity and has an understanding of the effects of the medical treatment. So therefore, it should be the child's decision and the parents should not be allowed to make the decision. He also thinks that he also, there's one where he talks about teenagers and people should be allowed to treat their bodies like gendered art pieces. This is a man with very extreme views who is a, a law professor at the University of Alberta.
0: But he's thankfully, this individual has been removed from the panel. Very quickly, one of the other changes is that the guidelines are only going to address treatments for adults, not for children or adolescents, correct?
3: Right, and that's a very important one, especially for Canada, because the announcement actually said that they will only be looking at adults because the evidence base for children and adolescents is limited and variable regarding the longer-term outcomes of gender-affirming care. Now, contrast that to the prevailing wisdom here in Canada where the science is settled, gender-affirming care is wonderful and medically necessary and saves lives and pr- take, you know, you must provide it to anyone who asks for it. It's basically the World Health Organization has just made a statement saying that there is limited and variable evidence for the treatment that every Canadian gender clinic, pediatric gender clinic is dishing out. It's very, it looks very bad for Canada at this point.
0: It does. That is, that's quite a, as you say, what is going on in Canada no longer aligns with the World Health Organization. That is a a potential big W or a big uh, victory. Mia, much to discuss and unpack. We'll leave for another time. How do we follow you on Twitter?
3: It's my handle is at underscore cry Mia River. Mia is M-I-A.
0: All right. Mia Hughes is a researcher journalist with WDI Canada. That's Women's Declaration International Canada. She writes for Michael Schellenberger's nonprofit Environmental Progress. Mia, thank you so much. All the best.
3: Thank you, Richard.
0: All right. Hour two awaits. Adam Zeebo from the National Post will be here about the... uh British Columbia advocates for safer supply drugs. You'll find out what they're up to. It's not good, I'll tell you that much. Francis Cresha, guest columnist with the Western Standard on the Liberal Government's Ministry of Truth, plus Open Lines. Stay with us. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption. This is The Richard Serrett Show.
2: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now, go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and
4: yell, I'm as bad as hell,
0: and I'm not gonna take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. I'd ask you not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Because in Kansas City. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see
6: something. You'll see the whole parade
0: of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. You're out of order! You're out of order! The whole trial is
4: out of order!
5: You have met all the primal forces of nature! And you will!
0: To hour 2 of the Richard Serrett Show. If you missed Hour 1, you missed a lot, but don't despair. Still plenty of great programming coming your way this hour, including guest col- columnist with the Western Standard, Francis Cresha, will be here. We'll talk about his uh, new op-ed piece, The Liberal Government's Ministry of Truth. Uh, that would be uh, the CBC and um, any other members of the legacy news media that are taking handouts from the Liberal Government. Open lines as well. This hour, in fact, you can start getting on board right now at 289-275-9600. 289-275-9600. Adam Zivo is uh, here once again, columnist with the National Post, and he's just been doing phenomenal work reporting on the um, safer supply drug policy that it's uh, <clears throat> excuse me really taken hold across the country, primarily in British Columbia where radical activists out there have um, convinced the government to institute this policy where opioid addicts can uh, can uh, receive a free uh, prescription to, uh, well, as the name entails, a safer supply of opioid, one that's not tainted, as um, perhaps street drugs might be. Uh, it's not going so well in British Columbia, as we're about to find out. And so they have re- re- resorted to other tactics Adam, welcome back. How are you? I'm great. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. So um, tell me about the naturopaths in British Columbia and and what they're why they're lobbying the provincial government. So back in November, a
6: series of naturopaths, uh, professional association, wrote a public letter to the Ministry of Mental Health and Addiction in B.C. and asked to be given the ability to prescribe safer supply. And they essentially said, you know, there's a big overdose crisis. Please let us help. We're happy to do it because, uh, in doing so, we would alleviate the ple- uh, the pressure on other healthcare providers and increase access to safer supply. Uh, now, the problem here is that their framing of the issue was actually misleading, because it isn't as though doctors don't have the capacity. To prescribe safer supply and need other professionals to step in and help them, and it's not as though safer supply is taking healthcare professionals away from their regular work. Rather, the issue here is that most doctors think that safer supply is irresponsible and potentially dangerous, so
0: they will not prescribe it. Ah, uh-huh. so the the support for this safer policy, safer supply policy. Uh, is declining in British Columbia. So does that mean it's the safer supply advocates that have gone to the naturopaths and asked them to lobby the government on their behalf?
6: I, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to say what I will say is that naturopath, from my understanding uh, in the past, we were prescribing you know, medical marijuana before marijuana legalization. So I don't think that they have been asked by the safer supply people to do this. But I do think that people, you know, see, obviously see a business opportunity here. Uh, One way to expand the scope of your profession is to abuse the overdose crisis and give yourself unprecedented powers in your industry because naturopaths have, you know, never been able to prescribe much before. They prescribe some vitamins and that's pretty much it. And then that must feel great. Right. You know, being more useful of being able to do more things. But it's, it's grossly irresponsible.
0: Um, but the the safer supply drug uh, advocates, uh, they don't just want naturopaths to be prescribing it. They want they want it pretty well, like the Wild West out there, as I understand it.
6: Yes. So here's the thing. Uh, doctors, they don't think that safer supply is is helpful. And, and that's a big problem for Safer Supply advocates, because currently there are two ways that you can get Safer Supply. So you can go to a dedicated clinic or, uh, or program, which is usually federally funded, and they just do Safer Supply and then combine it with other supports. And that is the spine of Safer Supply. Uh, but that, those kinds of programs, they actually are quite limited in capacity. So if you want to fully normalize Safer Supply and get it out to everyone... You need regular prescribers to give out prescriptions for it. So, you know, just your everyday doctor, whether it be an addiction doctor or anyone else. Uh, But the doctors don't want to. So Safer Supply is withering on the vine. Uh, So there was some data released early last year that showed that in, I think, two quarters, between quarter two and quarter three of last year, uh, Safer Supply access decreased by 11 percent in B.C., Uh, Harm reduction activists said that it was due to myths and misconceptions, which is their way of referring to uh, journalistic reporting, mostly coming from me, Mm -hmm. of the fact that Safer Supply is being resold on the streets. And from my understanding, from the physicians who I speak with in BC, support is just continuing to crater, so no one wants to prescribe. So Safer Supply advocates are trying to bypass physicians by giving
0: lower-tier health professionals the ability to prescribe well, that's a positive development, I would say, that they're, 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 the physicians are standing up and saying, this is a bad idea. They're saying it privately. Are they saying it publicly, though? That's another issue.
6: Well, not many of them are saying it publicly. Many of them are saying it privately. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is a good thing that they are resisting this, this inappropriate and irresponsible intervention. But, of course, the safety mm-hmm. supply advocates are trying to undermine their control. Uh, so since 2020, registered nurses who otherwise have very limited prescribing powers were given the ability to prescribe safer supply. Uh, And you can see in this trend that, you know, naturopaths would almost be like the next step downward, you know, just finding other people to fill in because if the experts won't do it, you get the less, the less qualified people. Mm. Um, What's even worse than all of this is that safe, some safer supply evangelists are now pushing for a quote-unquote non-prescriber-based or non-medical model that removes prescriptions from the equation entirely and uh, would essentially allow people to sell heroin and fentanyl in streets, sorry, in stores as if it were like alcohol. And and that's something that uh, the chief coroner of BC, Lisa LaPointe, strongly advocated for in October slash November and uh, the good thing is that the BC NDP uh, very quickly rejected that. So at least they realized that that level of
0: insanity is, is not good. Yeah, even the, even the NDP government has their limits. Uh, well, that's, I suppose, somewhat encouraging, somewhat. Um, I mean, how any, – any thoughts on if this um, – well, the non-medical model, the, the non-prescriber model seems to be off the table. But if the naturopaths, for example – uh, get their way and successfully lobby the government so that they can prescribe. What do, what will that mean in terms of, um, you know the 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 uh, the amount of the safer supply, so called, you know, getting back out onto the streets into the black market as as we are seeing. Well, I think that it
6: would significantly increase the amount of safe supply being dispensed across Canada. Well, at least in BC. And what would happen is that much of the Safer Supply would then be resold on the streets and end up in the hands of kids. Uh, I've interviewed, you know, just dozens of physicians and former drug users, and they estimate that, you know, at least 50 to 80 percent of Safer Supply clients are reselling their drugs on the streets. I've interviewed dozens of youth who have accessed these drugs and say that it's destroyed their lives or the, the lives of their friends. So it would be a disaster Right, and it would also make a mockery of the prescriber uh, gatekeeping system that we currently have, much in the same way how prescribing was turned into a bit of a mockery with with medical cannabis. Right, at first it was just to be prescribed. By a doctor, and then naturopaths could prescribe it, and basically, it just became a game to get your prescription, and that was okay with cannabis because cannabis is not going to ruin your life in most cases. But when it comes to just you know easily getting your hands on heroin
0: or fentanyl, that is an entirely different situation. Adam, we'll take a quick time out. Uh, I've got a few more questions for you. When we come back, Adam Zivo, columnist with the National Post, as we continue to discuss. British Columbia's radical safer supply drug policy. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us.
4: Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM.
0: And just a reminder, coming up next, open lines at 289-275-9600, 289-275-9600. Adam Zivo from The National Post stays with us, and we're discussing... Uh, His latest or one of his latest columns, this one on the uh, naturopaths in British Columbia, lobbying the provincial government there for the right to prescribe safer supply drugs. These are free government funded substitutes for potentially tainted, illicit substances. Uh, And the reason for this is apparently because support among medical doctors in British Columbia to prescribe safer supply drugs is cratering. They don't see the benefit. They think it's. Well, perhaps ill-advised. Let's put it that way. Uh, so now the naturopaths are saying, "Well, let us do it." Uh, Adam, can I also get an update on what's happening with the the um, the BC Advocates for Safer Supply um, wanting um, to be able to prescribe safer supply to children or minors, rather, without pr- parental consent? Uh, any new developments there? Nothing to my knowledge. So they seem to be
6: running with it. Oh, they are running with it. Yeah. Well, the way that they respond to it, at least what I've seen from the Safer Supply folk is that they say, well, uh, it's controlled and you need to have a diagnosis of an opioid use disorder to access Safer Supply. Uh, So they're basically saying it's OK if a kid gets it because it'll be under the care of a physician and the kid will be diagnosed. Uh, However, I wrote an extended report for the McDonald laurier Institute examining these protocols for safe fentanyl, uh, which came out last month. And what I found was that the requirement for an opioid use disorder diagnosis was actually hollow because clinicians were able to just simply disregard that requirement if they felt that it was in their best interest to do so. And there were no actual rules as to when they could disregard or not. So basically, you know, these clinicians can just say, okay, well, i I don't care if there's no good use disorder diagnosis. I'm just going to give this person Safer Supply anyways. Uh, On top of that, we have to look at this in the context of things. You know, we have been doing Safer Supply since 2020. Well, since 2016 in London, Ontario, but we really scaled it up in 2020. And they keep on saying, oh, you know, uh, it's not going to be a slippery slope. It's not going to be a slippery slope. We'll only do this. We'll only do that. And then every year, something new comes out. And it's just a constant expansion in a way that makes you think. Well, look, if they're allowing fentanyl for kids now, they're saying it's going to be controlled. But how can we trust that, given this history of, of, of I guess like miscon of, of of misleading
0: statements and just things growing way out of hand. The uh, the medical doctors in BC increasingly, um, privately at least, saying that that safer supply is a bad idea of the uh, amount of safer supply being prescribed is falling. Are you seeing similar trends, let's say, here in Ontario with medical doctors, at least privately, saying we're not going along with this? It's hard to say. Most of my contacts are in BC. I
6: do have a network of contacts in Ontario. What I can say is that, from my understanding, the Ford government does not support the strategy. Uh, So I don't know why they haven't been more vocal about it. Uh, I feel that Olivia Chow probably supports the strategy, but she hasn't made any moves on it. Uh, I personally found her to be surprisingly pragmatic as a mayor. Uh, I had low expectations, but she has exceeded them. Uh, so I hope that she listens here, you know? Um, and I know that in London, Ontario, it's a huge issue. And I know that there are doctors who are very frustrated with this. Uh, but, I know that one of the main doctors who's been frustrated with it, I'm not going to name this person. I know that they were recently sanctioned and they can no longer speak to the public about what they've been seeing with their patients, which I think is
0: deeply concerning. And the, the, the College of Physicians here in Ontario hasn't issued any sort of pronouncement one way or the other? And not to my
6: knowledge. And and the problem here is that once again, there's a lot of bad science going out there. that's published that gives the impression that it might work. Uh, for example, there was a study that came out last week that was called a quote-unquote landmark study showing that Safer Supply works. Uh, and then I delved more deeply into the study, and I've been reviewing it with like seven other doctors over the course of the past week and a trained statistician. And the it was just hot air. There was nothing substantive about it. Um, so what the study said was that Safer Supply significantly reduced mortality in the week after someone received it. Uh, which is a really weird way to frame something, right? Typically, when you study a healthcare intervention, you look at long-term outcomes, not the week after you get the treatment, right? For example, if you give someone insulin, you don't say, well, the insulin worked for a week. You say, well, what are the long-term outcomes of using this insulin again and again and again over a year or two or more? And when we delve into the data, we actually saw that it was no significant benefit after one year, Uh, So we don't know why the researchers decided to use this misleading framing to give the impression that this was working when it was not. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of journalists are ideological, and I'm going to be honest, kind of incompetent. Uh, So the CBC and the Global Mail published stories on these articles, sorry, on the study saying landmark study shows that safer supply works. Once again, there was no evidence that it was a landmark study aside from the authors saying that it was a landmark study. Um, so yeah, now the study is being touted throughout the media as being, you know, evidence that safe supply works when really it doesn't. And it's, it's a shame. It's
0: really disappointing. Can we safely say that safer supply drugs flooding into the streets, um, is causing, um, I don't know if we can say epidemic or, but a serious, serious problem, uh, of opioid addiction with younger people who never had previous exposure to uh, opioids? I would say so. And the problem is that we're not actually measuring this,
6: uh, which makes it very hard to comment on the scale of this issue. Um, But the easiest way to see that this is a problem is to look at the youth toxicity data in BC, which was released for the first time last summer. And they looked at data between 2017 and 2022. Uh, and this was published by the BC chief coroner. Now, the report was published in a way that was misleading. They essentially said that, oh, hydromorphone is not a huge issue because it's only present in 7% of youth drug overdose deaths. Um, but the thing is that Safer Supply only started in 2020s. So when you look at it by by year. It's 0% of deaths in 2017, 0% in 2018, 0% in 2019. Safer supply starts in 2020, 5%. 2021, 11%. 2022, 22%. So it is skyrocketing. But but for some strange reason, the BC chief coroner did not mention this growth and just said, oh, 7% overall. Uh, It would be like me saying oh, automobile, automobile accidents are uh, not a significant issue because we averaged the data from the 1700s to
0: today. And we see in the average of that 300 years, it's pretty low. And, and as you point out in your article, Adam, um, the chief coroner there, Lisa LaPointe, is, is one of the, uh, the evangelists for uh, the safer supply drug uh, policy in British Columbia. Adam Zivo, columnist with the National Post. Great work as always, Adam. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Open lines when we come back. 289-275-9600. Back with more of The Richard Serrett Show right here on Saga 960. Don't go away.
4: The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Open the door. That door.
0: The door is open at 289 275 289 275 But you got to get in fast because we only have maybe five, six minutes here. 289 275 just ahead of Francis Crescia, guest columnist with the Western Standard. He wrote a terrific piece uh, recently about what he calls the liberal government's ministry of truth. And I think you know what he means by the ministry of truth. That would be primarily the CBC uh, but also uh, the rest of the um, uh, news or the legacy mainstream news media, any of them that take a handout from the liberal government. Liberal government. I mean, it's just uh, un- unimaginable that a serious country in the West you would have a leader or a, or a government that would pay the media uh, and expect that the uh, citizens would have any faith in the news media which increasingly they do not i think it's only 42% now of uh, in a recent poll canadians trust the legacy media why do you suppose that is because they understand they know they're on the take Two eight nine two seven five ninety six hundred and uh, oh, look who it is! Our first call from anonymous in twenty twenty four. Anonymous, welcome to the Richard Serrett Show. How are you? Happy New Year! uh,
7: uh happy New Year, Richard. It's not anonymous—the one that you guessed correctly. Um, did you know it was me actually, or not? Or it's just because on your display it says it anonymous? It says anonymous, yes. But you didn't know. Did you have a feeling that I'd be calling you? Yes, my spidey
0: senses were tingling.
7: <laughs> you know richard um uh, you know like um, uh, we have to talk about uh, like remember last time we mentioned people raising from the dead uh, i think uh, people need to believe that there are consequences to everything you know nobody can get away with anything all these people who are doing all kinds of crazy things we are creating future for ourselves in this world you know like all this we have a lot of problems because people just don't believe that there's consequences. This is a very important subject as far as oh i agree the, uh, i agree
0: like, i agree you you believe in in things like karma and you know carrying carrying that karma with you into the next incarnation where I believe in a judgment uh you know we will be judged in the, in the afterlife, so we both at least agree. Uh, That that there is an afterlife You have one particular perspective, I have another But we agree that there are consequences Even after we die Uh, But unfortunately There are are too many materialists Out there that that believe That there is nothing after this And so there are no consequences And that is a problem
7: Maybe we can help you know, maybe we can uh, clarify this kind of thing, like uh, scientifically explain, like I last time I was attempting, but I think you need a little bit more time to give me, uh, to speak, unless it was clear. I don't think it's clear because we have still a world full of problems. What we, what I like to communicate that we are creating the future, you know, for ourselves. People see like there's such thing. they say there's uncertainty principle and uh, nobody can be certain what happens to them, you know. Nobody is certain about where the universe comes from, how it all works, who we are, whether we are for a reason, whoever we happen to be right now. Like, some people are like human, some are subhuman, you know, some are like in privilege, some are not. There are reasons, like why we are on this planet. All this, uh, I believe that we, like, we have to understand why uh, all these things are happening and see that we are cycling from the past into the future. And maybe we are talking about the same thing. What you are talking, uh, like, what you are saying, is in a different way, but the same thing. There are consequences, basically, the law of consequences. You cannot escape anything. There are always consequences to all things. And, uh you know, Greg Kraska, like I kind of like him sometimes, he used to talk, we talked about all the things, uh, he says that he doesn't believe, but he says himself that uh, we cannot escape from consequences. He was like, somebody stole his car, whatever. I said, Greg, look, uh, you are talking that there is no life after death, but uh, people who, uh, like you're spreading this kind of ideas and people who don't believe in life after death or any consequences, they steal your car. Like It's like as if you're making, uh, kind of bringing this to yourself, we instead of, like, uh, people have to realize what we say may has consequences also. Like, what we believe has consequences, and even by not talking, there are consequences. You know, we have to understand that there is no way to escape from consequences. But, the, like, I do definitely would like to, like, a little bit more, like, shine a bit about all these things. Richard, last time, uh, last moment, I want to tell you, last time I asked you for, like, a possibility to talk with you over there, and I heard what you said, uh, like off the air, so to say, I'm going to tell you like this, that, you know, we are all different. We are all capable of different things. You should not limit yourself, like that you have to call everybody whoever requests. You don't have to. You can call whoever you want, or you don't have to call anybody. You understand? But I... uh, Personally, I ask you to speak with you because I'd like to speak about these things. And if I make sense, I'd like to like be, you would like to be like some kind of uh, filtering type of person. I can talk like for feedback. If you think whatever I say makes sense, maybe we can uh, like uh, bring it to the air afterwards. But I want to talk about this thing off the air with you. If you would like to do this kind of thing, I, th- I think we'll make each other big favor for this world. Because I know you're suffering in this world with all this. Uh, we all are not happy here with all this people. On drugs and spreading all this. This is nobody making anything better for themselves. Are we happy with all this? No. So we have to make some changes, and including you. I think you should definitely give me a call. In my opinion, but uh, you don't know my phone number. Should I leave with uh, whoever? What you should or, do is you should um, you should email. Uh, you should go to Richard. I'm C- not email person, Richard. You're not an I'm email, not email
0: person. person. Well, pardon. Um, okay, let me. Uh, let's. We'll have to figure out how you can get your number to me then.
7: Uh, you okay. can also tell me no, but I, well, I'm i going to talk about these things. It won't take long time, but i just like to hear you. I respect your intelligence, and All I'd right. like to... I'll, I'll tell you what. Uh, and you can say, I'm sorry, I don't want it, and I'll accept it, whatever. Right, but I, gonna... I will know that we did our best. Maybe it will have something like... Uh, I think it will be beneficial, in my opinion. If we, like, I'd like to see the better situation in the world. I believe in climate change, you know, but for the, we can change it for the better, politically speaking, you know, because there's political climate change and we maybe may, may make it okay,
0: I'm I, I, I a slave to the clock and I'm late so I gotta okay. run but uh, we just have to figure out how you're going to get your number to me and we'll figure it out we'll I'll carve out maybe 15 minutes where we can uh, where we can talk all right thank you off oh, no. the air right no. off the air how about that I relented he wore me down <laughs> he wore me down I'm not going to make it a habit though Okay, when we come back, Francis Kresha from the Western Standard, the liberal government's ministry of truth. Back with that conversation in three minutes.
4: Just having a little chinwag on the Richard Sartre Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM.
0: All right, welcome back. Another great piece in the Western Standard by our friend Francis Kresha this time. Regarding the Liberal government's Ministry of Truth—that's what he calls it—the Ministry of Truth. Let's find out what he means exactly. Francis, welcome back. How are you? Oh, how you doing, Richard? Good, thank you. How are you? Good, very good, thank you. Oh, all right. So, the Ministry of Truth—it's um, more than the CBC. I'm gathering. What do you mean exactly by the Ministry of Truth?
2: So when I wrote the piece, I was looking at the Canadian media landscape. We all know about the CBC and the $1.2, $1.3 billion it receives annually in government money. Um, then I started looking at uh, 2019, the government added $600 plus million. Recently, during the fall economic statement, it increased the Canadian journalism tax credit from 25% to 35%. Through Bill C-18, it extracted $100 million from Google. Uh, Facebook walked away. <clears throat> so I started looking at this, and we're roughly very close to each Canadian journalist receiving half their pay through government subsidies. So I started looking at this. And I'm saying, to myself, what is going on here? How is a journalist going to be a journalist if they're being paid through the government? And I made my way towards, obviously, or- Orwell's uh, Ministry of Truth.
0: Right, there you go. Uh, what what percentage of uh, Canadian newsrooms are are subsidized by the government?
2: So, OK, so the, the money is distributed. No one exactly knows which organizations are getting this money, but it's roughly in the 150 range, 150 so organizations getting this money. Uh, obviously, there's a recent increase. Um, um, uh, independent media gets zero. So this is one of the things behind this. Uh, mainstream media will be getting the bulk of the money, and um, ind- independent media is zero. Which you know, typically they're the ones that are willing to at least criticize and hold the government to account. But roughly one hundred and fifty organizations. It's a. It's almost a quasi. It is a secretive process. There's a panel of five, six or more people. Two CBC. Ah, uh, one academic, the uh, lobby group uh, has a representative uh, directly or in the background, and they determine what uh, what is a uh, what defines a Canadian journalism organization to get some of this money.
0: I mean, that's problematic um, that they don't divulge who's receiving the money. I mean, that should be and and uh, Tom Korsky from Blacklock Blacklock's reporter has been on, um, and you know, and he basically got kicked out of the uh, – um, well, they didn't give him any office space at the Parliamentary Press Gallery because he complains about this, the fact that the legacy media, they do not advertise the fact or, or publish the fact that they are getting a handout. And I think that should be made known to the public when they're reading a news story or hearing a news story, um, whether or not they're receiving media from the government that they're supposed to be keeping an eye on.
2: Excellent point. If you notice, there's very little coverage about the government bailout or subsidies. Nobody really wants to discuss it. And uh, legacy media organizations, I don't want to mention them specifically, the, the larger ones, are receiving large amounts of money and they will not discuss it. Even when they do write an article, they write around it or position it softly and don't even mention it, in fact. It's a huge problem. Orwell talked about uh, de- developing a prison of self-censorship. In Canada, what we have now is pretty much self-censorship. Uh, journalists are not going to be able to do their jobs when they're receiving so much government money. you know, What does a journalist do? A journalist writes about the afflicted, those who are hurting in society. But then they have an even bigger job. Hold the status quo to account those in positions of power and the decisions they make and the impact on society. And I'm telling you, just as to give you a personal example, because I worked as a full-time journalist, apart from my corporate career in the early years, I worked as a full-time journalist for a media company. And I got to know a number of journalists in the business and so on, specifically from the media company. Not one has written anything about this stuff. Not one single piece of criticism.
0: And that tells you the state that we're in. Francis Crescia, guest columnist with the Western Standard. We're talking about the liberal government's ministry of truth. We'll take a quick time out back with more of our conversation right after this time out. Let's
4: rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga
0: 9:60 a.m. All right. Welcome back. And uh, before we get back to my conversation with Francis Crescia talking about the liberal government's ministry of truth, let me lay some more truth on you. When was the last time you evaluated your financial situation or asked yourself, is my advisor and the large financial company they work for the best organization to help me realize my financial goals? Our friends at Rocklink Investment Partners work with Canadians across the country to develop a simple but effective plan to make sure that you're on the right road to reach your financial goals. The team at Rocklink is committed first and foremost to the long-term growth of your capital the old-fashioned way. They're not preoccupied with political correctness, gender ideology, ESG, or diversity, equity, and inclusion. So why not give them a call today? Tell them your buddy Richard sent you at 905-631-5462 or email at info at rocklink.com. That's info at rocklink.com and find out how they can help you secure your financial future. Rocklink, R-O-C-K-L-I-N-C. Francis Crescia, again, a guest columnist with the Western Standard, talking about the liberal government's Ministry of Truth, with their bailouts and their subsidies, uh, controlling the uh, the legacy mainstream media. Well, the other thing that you point out in your uh, your article, uh, and I think it's important, is that the reason. Well, there's two reasons. One, obviously, the liberal government is interested in 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 controlling uh, the message, the narrative that's put out by the uh, the media. I mean, this is the way all autocrats operate. They either close the press or they buy them. Uh, I mean, I'm, don't make too much of the comparison between Trudeau and Hitler, but Hitler did buy media organizations in uh, in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm.
5: Um,
0: but the other thing that that needs to be pointed out is that they they they're failing. They. Re- they're getting the subsidy because they have a failed business uh, model, right? They're not keeping up with the technological age.
2: Well, you hit the nail on the head. So, so what happens there? The way it's set up currently and how the liberal uh, government is going about business is to subsidize what's already there. Like turn the media industry, not quite like the telco business, but have that kind of regulation and power over it, and not allow the business to compete. So, if the if you removed the uh, the government subsidies, what would happen is a lot of these organizations would would die out, and allow the digital economy to kick in and innovation to take place. Sure, we may have a more fragmented media uh, landscape as per because there's so much information out there and a lot of it is free. However, within it, uh, consumers would have choice. They'd say, you know, XYZ organization is covering the kind of stuff I like to hear. I will pay for what they have to offer and so on. Allow the marketplace to go into the next stage through digital innovation and new business models to develop and independent media to pick up momentum. What's happening today is that uh, the Liberal government is stepping in, doing what it's doing. Let's say we're roughly anywhere from a third to 50% now government-owned, and really what it's going to do is cement mediocrity. And that mediocrity is there. It's going to be there for the long haul, and in time, Canadian consumers, voters, will
0: not even know that it's happening. Right, but in the meantime... Public trust in the legacy media is, is in free fall. Uh, I think it's um, – I'm not sure if you, you quote some statistics, but I read recently it's like, what, 40, only 40% of Canadians? So well, here it is. Uh, you have it here. University of Oxford's digital news report found only 42% of Canadians are trusting of most news. That's 13% less in 2016. So in less than a decade, it's fallen by 13% trust, that is, in the news media. Now, what came first, do you think? The cratering of uh, Canadians' confidence in the news media because of uh, you know the realization they're being paid, they're being subsidized by the government, or is, it a, is the lack of confidence or trust the result of just simply the product that the, the legacy media you know, has been pumping out for for a long time, regardless of a subsidy.
2: Sure, that's a very good question. I think uh, a, a little more context. I mean, the obviously the internet age and the disruption that has created. Young people between eighteen and thirty four, their go to is social media to connect to news, whether directly or indirectly. So there's that component. The decimation of traditional media is another key factor. Billions have been lost. Quality journalists are gone. Um, Over the past decade, billions have been lost, to be specific. So all that has led to where we are today, where um, Canadians' uh, trust in the news media and also in, in its independence continues to decline because the landscape, the disruptive technologies, the decimation of traditional business models, omnipresent information, uh, government intervention, because Canadians are aware they're not going to be fooled that much, um, has led to uh, a lack of trust in the news or believing that a lot of the news is simply
0: biased. Right. We And uh, we've turned journalism schools into uh, social justice warrior academies. That's, right. That's also part of the problem.
2: That's huge. I mean, when we go into the educational system, personal point there, from what I can tell, I'm involved in different kinds of activities. We need major reform there. But yes, uh, academia has veered way to the left. Uh, the teaching of journalism, for example, I did uh, broadcast journalism before I went on to my uh, university degree. The first year we were teaching economics, the students petitioned along with some professors to get rid of economics because it was too challenging and replace. and this is at the time when I went to school with basket weaving stuff. Fast forward today in a context of identity politics and our obsession with equality. And there's nothing wrong with having equality as an ideal and so on. But our obsession with it and our uh, lack of challenging students, because no one can fail any longer, gets us to this point. And what it means is simple. Uh, the gra- those graduates, I'm not going to say all because there's lots of talented people in society. I don't want to uh, overgeneralize. But the media uh, business itself now will begin to draw in like minded people, not individuals who want to question things or contrarians in any way and independent minded, so on. Like minded people uh, who are there for their own reasons of status, holding on to a career, and looking for government
0: handouts. Right. So, do you think the federal government should just allow uh, these failed business models? To uh, Well, to fail, like, for example, you know, when Uber came along, I don't remember the federal government or the provincial government, you know, deciding that they were going to bail out the taxi industry and subsidize. They have to adapt or they fail.
2: They, you know, I'm a believer in free markets, so the government should stay out of the media business. They do have a role in a big country like Canada that's so big geographically culturally kind of divided between the Anglo-French. We have multiculturalism and so on. We have, you know, northern frontiers with indigenous people. We, there is a role for a properly funded public broadcaster. There is that role to get information out to communities in the distance that don't have easy access to information. But otherwise, if you're a media company owned by BCE, why should you be getting money? You know, owned by some of these other big uh, conglomerates. Eighty percent is uh, of media companies in Canada are owned by the big players, the mainstream media, focusing in on print. No one is reading newspapers any longer. I grew up with newspapers. I would love to be reading a newspaper today, but it's no longer in play. We've gone beyond the wheel now. You know, we're in the techno- technological digital age. Allow new business models to come in, new executives, fresh-minded people to come in and say, hey, we can do this on our own. We don't really need government. Government does have a role in maybe offering up incentives so that capital that is invested uh, to meet that, to incentivize executives and people to take risks. There is that role. But when you do and are searching to control the media, we are looking for for deep, deep trouble in terms of what Trudeau loves to always say, our democracy, he loves that term. Well, I mean, democracy
0: may be, may be destroyed from within. Francis Gresha, guest columnist with the Western Standard. Westernstandard.news. Just go to the opinion section. Westernstandard.news support independent media, just like we're talking about. Francis, thank you as always. Thank you, Richard. Have a great evening and thank your listeners. Thank you. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody and Jacob, and I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. I'll speak with you at 4 p.m. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.